Nice ring, Van Pecten. Zeus Ale Prophets. Miss Fossey, what did you see your first wild animal? In a zoo, wasn't it? You like this ring? You want to keep the hand this ring is on? If I see or hear or smell you anywhere near my gorillas, you'll be writing with your other hand, and I'll have a new ashtray. You understand me? You understand well, me? Yes, crazy I am. Woman. I am crazy. You'll go too far. Good. Don't That's push good. me. I'll push you off the museum. You murderer! That's all that's left of your runners. They're dead. All of them? What the hell happened? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? God damn it, don't play games! I don't know! I was moving in. Everything was fine. Then I heard gunshots. When I got to where they should have been, all I found was that shirt and enough blood on the ground to paint this office. Where are you going? I want some answers. Well, that makes two of us. Imagining a rope around that beautiful neck. I know what you were imagining. Such a clever witch. So typical of your kind to twist the truth, to cloud the mind with unholy thoughts. Well, no matter. You've chosen a magnificent prison, but it is a prison nonetheless. Set one foot outside, and you're mine. No, no. Jane. Tarzan. Jane. Jane. Exactly. I gave my word I would not come for the girl. Your death, however, is long overdue, Superman. Any of those sound familiar? Yeah, I kind of thought so. There was Gorillas in the Mist, A Lash of the Dogmen, Disney's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, DC's Batman Superman Apocalypse, and the 2011 revival of Thundercats in that little mini montage. And that's the edited down version. If we'd also have included, as originally intended, those from Atlantis The Lost Empire, Batman Year One, and others, it just would have run on too damn long. But even without any clips at all, while some late film fans may not know his name, the diehard cinema buff knows well that of Tab Murphy. As over the last 30 plus years as writer and or director, he's been responsible for giving us not just memorable movies, which would have been well and good, but those which have literally served as signposts or time codes of life, if you will. Will remembering where and when you saw certain films flash you back to who you actually were at the time, and now, ironically while looking back, also flash you forward to who you are? Hope I'm making a little sense there. <laughs> but that kind of ironic dichotomy of going two places at once is part and parcel of what, in our opinion at least, makes Murphy's work so damn unique. 
Too many filmmakers, major and minor, studio and independent, and film critics get caught these days in the either-or mindset of old-school versus new-school. Either that everything new is inferior to the classics mode, or the, you know, we really can do everything better these days manner of thinking. But what I've always personally loved and responded to in Murphy's brand of filmmaking, his cinematic law, if you will, is how he's so adept at combining the two. Whether it's figuring out a way to bring a literary classic to a new generation, as he did so effectively with Disney's animated Hunchback and Tarzan, or whether it's creating a modern-day lost civilization saga, as he does with the magnificent Last of the Dogmen, starring Tom Berenger and Barbara Hershey, my personal favorite film of his, and his too, by the way, and which next year we'll see a brand spanking new Blu-ray version of his preferred cut. So, uh, crack open or light him if you got him, and sit back and enjoy this combination shooting the shit about favorite movies throwdown and film school graduate class sit-in session, wherein we cover so much ground, from Tab's early years, where he almost became a forestry ranger, to Gorillas in the Mist, his involvement in the famous Art Buckwald coming to America case, to Dogmen, the Disney films, Thundercats, and more. So much, in fact, that it became necessary to break this one up into two parts so as to not have to rush through anything. The first half mostly covering Tab's live-action films, and the second primarily devoted to his work in the realm of animation. I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online, and welcome to an all-new edition of The Movie Sneak, Murphy's Law. Of gluing audiences to their seats, that is. Awesome to have you here, Tab. Uh, it's a pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure. And to start, and I guess it's a combo of a statement and a question attached to it at the end. One of the things I love about what you do as a writer and a director, uh, one of the things my personality is, I guess, magnetically attracted to in your work is how, um, and I'll try to do a quick Reader's Digest version of this. I remember director Sidney Pollack in an interview once talking about Robert Mitchum, which whom he'd worked with uh, on the Yakuza and mentioning how Mitchum was a brilliant raconteur and charming as hell and all that, but mostly how he tended to downplay, almost to the point of kind of being embarrassed at the artistry involved in how well he did what he did. Mm. Uh, like Pollock, Pollock said, if you ask Mitchum, how do you get a good performance out of me? He would say something like, pay me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and stuff like that. Finally, you know? <laughs> an honest answer in Hollywood. Right. I love it. <laughs> but how that outward downplaying almost kind of belied a true artist and a craftsman who really knew his tools and his craft and the history of his chosen profession. And because of that, he could do things with it that many couldn't. Kind of like 
Bruce Lee saying how you learn all the rules so that you know how to break them. Misham yeah. obviously knew all of his stuff well. Yes. You know, and similarly, I kind of find, and this might just be me projecting what I, what I want to see, while on the surface, much of your material, whether it's live action stuff like Last of the Dogmen or an animated film like Disney's Atlantis or Tarzan or a series like Thundercats or whatever, I notice kind of how on the surface, they had, for me anyway, they had this kind of old school boys own adventure pulp aspect to them. Mm-hmm. But below the surface, there's some serious classical literature stuff going on in pretty much all of them. Yeah. And and I don't just mean like the obvious and like figuring out how to adapt something dark like Victor Hugo's Hunchback in Notre Dame into an animated film. Right. Although, yeah, that counts too. But say in a couple of the Thundercats episodes, which we'll get into a little later, like in The Duelist and The Drifter, while on the surface, it kind of first plays like a nifty Star Wars thing. I'm sorry, Star Trek thing with with a mud or a Q-like character. It evolves into like some straight up Homer (laughs) later down the line. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I would say that uh, my inspiration for that particular episode was less Homer, although, you know, it's funny, it's like subconsciously you write and and things come out and Mm -hmm. relationships come out that or that seems familiar or or tropes suddenly surface that you put a fresh spin on that that seem familiar but in that particular episode i i loved writing that episode because that was my uh you know my that that was my samurai uh, by way of fistful of dollars, uh, exactly. Western episode. That was really what the inspiration was for 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 that episode, and mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun writing it. So, yeah, uh, awesome. Because and it's um that feeling for the material. Um, I, I I guess when I look at some of your stuff, especially those Thundercats episodes, I think of like. Uh, our writer Haggard meets Johnny Quest, <laughs> you know, oh, wow. or Samurai meets Sergio Leone, like you said, and that's something that you don't learn or pick up on as much as, you know, you don't just watch a Lucas interviews, Joseph Campbell video. Right. Suddenly it's all in your subconscious. That's kind of stuff you grow up with. And I think you have a love. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. That's, that's the kind of stuff that you're subconsciously influenced is, uh, you know, by as a kid, your, uh, whether it's, you know, in my day, of course, growing up in the 60s, there was a lot of TV watching. and and But I was also, uh, you know, uh, luckily to be a member of a family of, uh, you know, my parents that were moviegoers. They were moviegoers. So Same here, I grew yeah. up with five siblings. So we went to the movies often. And I remember going to, you know, roadshow versions of The Sound of Music. And mm. Uh, and but they would load us into the back of a big. We, we nicknamed it the tuna boat, but an old station wagon. <laughs> we'd go to the you know we'd go to the drive-in often, mm-hmm. and you know in those days there were triple features, and yeah. uh, we would you know it would uh, um, I, you know most of my siblings by the, the middle of the second movie would be sound asleep. My parents would be watching, and I'd be, have my little fat little face between them watching wide-eyed too all these movies and and uh yeah it just uh so that's you're exactly right it's almost by osmosis sometimes and then you couple that with my i was a huge huge reader Mm, as a kid you know i would spend my summers reading i would you know one summer i just read all the james bond all ian ian fleming books books on so 
you know, that kind of stuff just with, without even realizing it begins to inform, uh, you know, how you become a storyteller and how you, uh, you know, you shape your ideas and under the influence of all the things that you've seen and, and have responded to. So it's, yeah, it's terrific. Well, that's a perfect segue into uh, getting into your background. Uh, that's, I guess that's half of it right there, like how you came <laughs> to do what you do. So um, I guess just for those who are not familiar uh, with your background, uh, and especially since uh, sites like IMDb and Wikipedia not only don't have all the details, but can very frequently get stuff wrong. Sure. Uh, <laughs> can you just give a quick, uh, I guess, Reader's Digest version of uh where you where you grew up and uh, how you got into writing, I guess, dovetailing sure. with what you just sure. told us. Uh, I grew up in Olympia, Washington. Uh, in the, you know, I was a kid in the early to mid '60s, and and then a teenager in let's see, uh, it, it, I it was I was 13 in in 1970. So, um, so I grew up you know, in a, in a, in a large family, uh, and, and I was the oldest of five. Oh, okay. But I just, from, I don't know, <laughs> you know, from the get-go, I was drawn to move. And most of my childhood memories revolve around experiencing or watching something that affected me on mm-hmm. TV, whether it was a movie or going to the movies and, and seeing something that that affected me as well, and I had what I would consider a pretty normal childhood uh, um, growing up. But ironically, um, my nickname in in grade school was Spock because I had pointed ears. <laughs> <laughs> and and somewhere around 1968, I remember going over to my best friend at the time, his house for a sleepover, Randy Bergstrom, and they had a color TV, and we didn't. Oh my God! You're yeah. right. We did have the same childhood. Okay. Yeah, and I saw my the first thing I saw in color on TV was a Star Trek episode. Oh, uh, cool! It was cool. It was it was it changed my life. I mean, I I literally went home the next day and guilted my dad into buying a color TV. Uh, actually, I I didn't guilt him. He across the street we had a, a you know a, a friend a, a couple and they were a bit older but. He was a football fanatic, and I was over visiting for some, you know, I used to shovel their walks and everything. I was over at their house, probably getting cookies from his wife. But they had a color TV, and he was watching USC versus UCLA, and I was like, oh, my God, UCLA (laughs) have gold helmets. And so I ran back across the street, and I told my dad, you got to come see this, you know. So he came across the street. And he sat and he watched USC and UCLA play for about a quarter with the, oh, jeez, what was his name? and that was it. He was sold. Yeah, was I it. mean, we the very next day, he went down, and we but we had our color TV. So there you go. <laughs> well, I'll just quickly say, uh, you just God, you just brought something up. Uh, yeah, we had a black and white TV too, or black and white TVs. My dad was one of those people; he could find old TVs and refurbish them. Oh, so me and my brothers all had black and white TVs in our room, um, and we were always told by people, you know, that Spock was green. And I think they were just lying because they didn't. They had black and white TVs too. <laughs> so when we finally did get a color TV, I personally spent the first week 
messing with the tint, trying to get trying to green, get it right. <laughs> but everything else was wrong. And eventually I realized they have been lying to me oh all this time. Yes. He's not green. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, once color invaded our house, it was like a revelation. We just watched. We would watch anything. I'd watch the news. I would watch yeah. anything just to see it in color, you know. Uh-huh. I mean, it was crazy. Um, but that's cool. Like I mean, but I, I have very like fond it. memories of those black and white TV days in the 60s because I saw a lot of cool stuff with my dad, sometimes alone. But I, you know, my parents would go out. Just, I'll just give you like a shotgun burst of, of some memories, black and white yeah. TV. My parents going out. Now, this was another time and a place, you have to remember. And I was probably... Yeah, nine or ten left in charge of my siblings to, to take care of them and so we're scrolling around pet the, the the black and white tv and thing from another world and so we start watching it and then we jump behind the couch and we keep watching it by peeking over and then yes, just, exactly. then suddenly finally we're just down behind the couch listening to it and that was terrifying <laughs> you know and so i got in big trouble for you know that but i you know just Memories like that, or watching Outer Limits episodes with my dad, uh, uh, you know, at a time when I was so impressionable, and I just, I, I just loved things that thrilled me, that even scared me. I wasn't afraid to be afraid of, you know, in terms of what I was watching on the screen. Mm-hmm. I found it thrilling, and I knew probably there was a, some sort of subconscious realization that it's not real, so it's okay to be afraid. It's it. You're going to be okay. So I just sought out, especially like monster movies and horror films and all the classic Universal movies, and I just sought and I started collecting famous monsters of Filmland. When ah, cool. And uh, so I was just obsessed with uh, those types of movies and that type of material all through my childhood. I mean, I would, I would pick fruit at the neighbors just so I could earn 50 cents so I could run down to the drugstore and buy the latest copy of Famous Monsters of Filmland back in the... And I still have those issues, by the way. That magazine really was interesting, too, because it opened up a world to me of more than just the movies, but in terms of who were the stars of those movies, from directors to actors. I learned about Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney Sr. and Jr. and the whole gamut you know, and and the directors, and and you learn how the movies, you know, were made and put together a little bit, and and that just fascinated me, just fascinated. I'm Vincent Price, and you're invited to my party in the house on Haunted Hill, where so far the ghosts have murdered only seven people. So won't you come and make it eight? Are you ready, dear? Yes, damn you. The ghosts are waiting, so won't you join me in the house on Haunted Hill? Hurry, or you'll be late for your own funeral. Um, anyway, I, I was just talking about uh, my early influence of, of uh, sort of scary movies and horror films. And I remember watching, I mean, that, that was, the 60s were great because they threw a lot of stuff on TV and they didn't really edit out and uh, they also I mean you know just terrifying moments of watching the house on Haunted Hill at a neighbor's oh. house and, and literally just you know when the witch came bursting past that uh, the actress 
just literally crapping my pants, dude. I mean, I was just that scared, but in a way that was thrilling, not terrifying. Um, and uh, it's just many, many other movies. I would seek out the TV guide and find out what movies, you know, were, were going to be playing and try to wrangle my way into being able to stay up and watch them. But, you know, also growing up in the 60s, you had TV series like The Addams Family and... Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you just, you know, the 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 resurgence of cult, you know of horror and classic horror movies found new forms and 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 it was a it was a it was an exciting time for me as a kid, you know. So as large as a leap as it may be, how did we get from the kid enjoying this stuff to the guy who created this stuff? Well, that's a that's a windy trail. <laughs> That's a long and winding road, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But I mean, I, you know, it starts probably starts. I mean, the DNA of it starts in uh, probably. Uh, well, I know where it starts. It starts in middle school when I, you know, I had an English class where we had to write stories, and uh, and this kind of connects to Last of the Dogmen in a strange way. But uh, I, you know, I mean, vivid memory of one of the first stories I wrote. And it was a free writing class, they called it. So you could write any story you wanted uh, within certain parameters. It had to be a certain length. But uh, we were, you know, it was English composition plus creative writing. Um, so I wrote a story. And everybody was writing stories about, you know, their dogs and their cats and, you know, home life and this and that. And we went to a fair <laughs> yeah, this right. weekend and blah, blah, blah. So I wrote a story about a young Lakota boy going on his first buffalo hunt. Cool. And he goes on his first buffalo hunt, and he shames himself before the men, and he scares off a herd, I think, the herd initially with his enthusiasm. So he is relegated to staying behind and, and, and watching over the ponies while the men continue the hunt. And his father is the chief of the tribe, so he feels very humiliated. Oh, and uh, And as he's watching these the, the, the herd of ponies and feeling miserable he looks out on the horizon and there's a lone buffalo bull standing there so he grabs his pony and his spear and his bow and arrow he mounts up and he rides out and it's like he does battle with this bull awesome. who, won't, who won't back down and he ends up killing it uh, and so the men come back and they see what he's done and, and he get he gets what he wanted which is acceptance into the the hunting, you know, uh, 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 and 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 sort of his rite of passage to manhood. Nice. And what the fuck was I doing writing <laughs> yeah, that right. at whatever thir- fourteen years of it? I mean, why would why did I write that? Literally, where did that come from? That was so strange. And then, so I got you know like singled out in that class by the teacher, and I had to go. This was mortifying. She said, "We, I, I really want you to go read this to the other English class next door, and they're all waiting for you." And in that class, I think was a girl I had a crush on, but I was so terribly shy, so I had to go in there and, with shaking hands, stand in front of the class and and read the story that I had written, and uh, and it was, and then I finished, and it was met with stony silence, and the, the teacher said, "Thank you very much for coming." That's all I. I'm I'm leaving and I'm just probably sweating bullets and so embarrassed. And that girl came up to me and said, "That was a really cool story. I just want to let you." Hey, I know. So that was uh, 
the first indication that I, you know, might be able to write stories, and the second indication that writers got all the hot chicks. <laughs> which, guess which one I was wrong on, Craig? <laughs> and yeah, later found out that it was guitar players that got up, got all the chicks. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, no, but so that really was, and I didn't think much of it, but I really enjoyed the process of writing. I love telling stories, and I think that was born, again, out of just watching so many movies and and just freeing my mind to, you know, just, you know, go with things. And I, um, you know, so in that, there were just, so I did a lot of writing in, in middle school and into high school, and I had a, an English teacher in high school that encouraged me, and but I didn't really, honestly, I just didn't really take it seriously i just thought okay i'm just trying to get a good grade here it's like robert mitchum just pay me I, i'm just trying to get an a i'm not really thinking i'm a writer or anything i'm just trying uh, to get an a so um so off i go i mean i come to the end of my senior year and while in in my senior year i took a you know a filmmaking class which you know 1975 there weren't a lot offered but there there was a guy in in my high school who taught one Ron McCabe, and he had a tremendous influence over me, and he was a big, jolly, heavy-set guy uh, who just loved films, and he loved old comedies. He loved the Marx Brothers. He so he showed us a lot of stuff in that class, and in that class, we had to take our little Super 8 cameras and go off and make two, little two- or three-minute films, so that was my first exposure to the physicality of filmmaking, mm -hmm. uh, and, and to be in a classroom situation and be able to talk about movies and see movies and and and, and uh, what just blew my mind i'm like this is so cool so anyway at the end of that my senior year in high school you know where i grew up in olympia washington uh, washington state is sort of divided into two halves you have the the wet you know you know green part of the state is on the west side and then you have this sort of the dry <laughs> Uh, what they call the Palouse, the, the the wheat fields on the on the on the on the east side of the state, and there are two colleges in Washington, and most people, 85 to 90 percent, choose one or the other. You're either going to be a Husky at the University of Washington, or you're going to be a Cougar at Washington State University. And I thought Cougars are way cooler than Huskies. <laughs> and also at that time. I wanted. I felt. I thought I wanted to be a forest ranger. I, I. I grew up loving the outdoors. I spent a lot of time in the outdoors, camping and hunting and fishing and backpacking and all these things. And I just my affinity for nature drew me to the idea that you know I. I wanted to be a forest ranger, so I opted to go to Washington State University. That was my first year at college. But very quickly, uh, you know, into the. Uh, first semester literally i realized i'd made a mistake uh, uh, not because you know i didn't think forestry was cool but my idea of what forest ranger was was very different than the <laughs> the classes much more I was practical thinking. oh I, I wanted the romanticized version of riding horseback in the backcountry and you know patrolling the land and you know Helping people, you know, in trouble, and you know, like I, I had created a whole TV series in my <laughs> mind about what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life, and um, that TV series got axed, man, right out <laughs> of the school. gate. <laughs> it, it, it got axed by classes like biochemistry and uh, you know, 
and all of these and calculus and all these classes. All of stuff with like, math in it, right, right. Yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute, <laughs> man. This is not what I signed up for. So I literally had this epiphany where, and I remember, that, I recall this, I, I was in my tiny dorm room and my dorm mate was off to class and I was alone in there and I was not happy and I was thinking, geez, I mean, this is just not working out. So I, I literally looked myself in the mirror, uh, my, looked at my face and I said, and I asked myself, okay, look, just, you know, like, look inside, what do you want to do with your life? What do you really want to do if you had nobody, no expectations, nobody telling you that you should do this, do that? I mean, what's the God's honest answer that's going to, and I just like blurted out, I want to go to Hollywood and, and, and be in the movie business. And so, I mean, I literally shocked myself when I said that or thought that. I don't oh. know if I actually said it out loud. But it, it uh, so I, I remember I called my parents and I said, yeah, this uh, this Force Ranger thing isn't working out over here, and uh, and they were like, well, you know, that's fine. It's now you're not the first, you know, first year college student who decides to change, right. you know, in midstream and do something different. So what do you want to do? So I said, well, you know, I think I want to go to Hollywood and and make movies, and <laughs> dead silence mm. on the other the line, right? I mean, I I could have said I want to fly to Mars and you know live on Mars. Got a better response. Because it was so, so out of left field, you know, not for them. And uh, they had no reference point. There was no like, oh, yeah, we'll call up Uncle George and he'll put you in touch with somebody. You right. can learn. There was none of that. I mean, I was like from a small town in Washington. Um, but, I mean, you know, to my parents' credit, I have to say, they were like, well, we don't know anything about that, but if that's really what you want to do, then we'll support you, you know, your efforts. Nice. Um, and I really truly believe that had I heard something different, I might not be sitting here today with you talking. Because I think a lot of young people, sometimes they, they reach a crossroads. And I think a lot of well-meaning parents talk them down, talk them out of their dream because of fear, because they're afraid for that. Yes. And uh, so I have to give my parents a lot of credit. They didn't know jack squat about Hollywood, uh, other than the fact, other than the time my dad loaded us all up and drove us down to, Hol to Disneyland, mm -hmm. and which, you know, so, th but to, for them to say, okay, what do you need to do, and where do you need to go, and we got to, you know, let's work figure this out so that's how I ended up applying to USC film school and and so in my sophomore year I got on a plane in, in late August and I flew to LA and I didn't know a soul I was 19 years old I didn't know anybody I just knew that I had to pursue this I had to do it and see what would happen you know and I think I was probably a little naive mm. because I probably should have been more afraid or scared or, or just wondering what, what the heck I was doing. But I didn't. I just, you know, I just came down here and, and thought, okay, this is where I need to be. You know, if I so that's really, that was the start of it. If I can just uh, throw this in here real quick, like what this reminds me of, and um, this is just confirmation, and I hope it's confirmation for a lot of other people who are listening. Uh, it reminds me of an old Flintstones episode. <laughs> 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 yeah, I grew up in the 60s watching too much TV, too. I don't, do you remember the episode where um, Pebbles and Bam Bam became singing stars? Yeah, and then at the end, Fred realized he was just having a dream to turn into a nightmare. Blah blah. But there was one scene where they go to a shrink, Fred and Wilma, 
and they're saying, how can they be singing when they can't even talk yet? And this always stuck with me, even as a kid. Uh, the doctor says, well, no one ever told them they couldn't do it, so they did it. Brilliant. You know, and, and that stuck with me. Even from a very young age, I knew there was some serious Zen shit in that statement. And you kind of just said the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah, no, truly, truly. And I, like I said, it could have gone either way. And I, I've, I've known people, and then good friends, that didn't have that kind of support. Uh-huh. And again, it's not that the parents don't want them to succeed. It's all down, done, uh, you know, out of love and out, out of, of love fear. And concern. Uh, and concern. But it's unfortunately, um, you know, it, I think it's fucked a lot of young people yeah. out of pursuing their dreams at the end of the day because they have doubt. It, it, it plants the seed of doubt mm. at a time when they want to run out and embrace the world and give it their all. Suddenly, there's a little bit of doubt that's that's planted, and that doubt can germinate into full blown, mm-hmm. you know, stasis mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, pursuing something if they feel they don't, if they feel that they're going against, you know, people who they respect and care mm-hmm. about their wishes or whatever. So, anyway, my parents didn't give a fuck about me. They said, "Go ahead, go on." <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Let them brawl in the brain. <laughs> Sure, I'm sure they were just as terrified. Oh, sure they they bit their tongue, man. Yeah, yeah. They bit their tongue, and it was cool. And so I went, you know, and they realized I had to go, you know, do this. Right. And I think in my dad's case, you know, one of the things, one of the stories he always talked about that, uh, in terms of regret, was that when he was a young man uh, applying for colleges, he just took a chance and applied to Notre Dame, a school that he just idolized, loved, just idolized. I mean, you know, and he got accepted. Yeah. But. His dad talked him out of going. Oh my God! Wow. Suggested he go somewhere closer to home, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think my dad always regretted that. And so, I, you know, in that moment when I, I think mentioned about going down there and trying this out, I, you know, I think he remembered and and he just, uh, you know, gave me the, mm-hmm. you know, the license to at least try, you know, without, you know, playing, you know, the concerned parent, right. you know, card. Um. Anyway, so I went to USC Film School, and, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. I was kind of from a, you know, like a middle class. I was from the, you know, the the middle class where, uh, you know, my parents earned too much to get financial aid, and I didn't earn enough to actually go to school. (laughs) So I had to piecemeal that fucker together over the the next two or three years, and including a stint of, of, of moving home and, you know, going back into my bedroom mm-hmm. as, you know, I, and in those days you feel like an adult and you look around and you go, oh my God, I'm living at home and my dreams are withering on the vine uh-huh. kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I earned my money and I bought a motorcycle and I, I literally bungee corded my typewriter, yes, typewriter, yeah. uh, to the back of that thing and I set back off for L.A. and I told my parents, I said, okay, this time I'm not coming back, so, you know, so come what may. And I came down and I took a few classes. Well, what what I want to say about USC was that it was uh, it was a great school because I was just a, around film people, mm-hmm. you know, like you and like others, you know, a hundred percent of the time. That's I mean, yeah. it just was like so immersive and so great, and and uh, I, I I just was thirsting for that kind of mm-hmm. uh, you know like uh, fraternity. 
Um, just kind of found the and, land of misfit toys, and you fit right in. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> it was terrific, and I met a lot of people. And you know, uh, one of the guys that uh, I uh, uh, hung out with a little bit was Kevin Jewison, who was Norman Jewison's son. Oh, cool. And uh, you know, he wanted to be a, a DP, and he's out. I think he's out shooting these days. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know. Like in the so you met a lot of people that were there to you know to learn more about their craft or to you know, but uh, I, I, the one thing I did do was I because I hearkened back to my writing days in you know middle school and high school I decided to take a screenwriting class, and that literally was the best decision I ever made and I uh, fell under the sort of the umbrella and uh, mentorship of. Uh, a screenwriting instructor there who, you know, after a few stabs at it, took me aside and said, look, you you know, this is really something you should pursue because you're pretty good at it. And uh, and I I guess I took him at his word because shortly afterwards I dropped out of school. <laughs> and I, I, I moved to, uh, I was like, oh, my God, I dropped out of school and I thought, where am I going to live? L.A. is such a huge, sprawling place place as you know and I said well I better live close to something that reminds me of the movies so it doesn't so I don't get so lost somewhere in the valley end up doing a terrible job that I hate and suddenly turn around and you know I'm 35 and I'm you know like I've forgotten why I'm there uh, so I moved literally in the shadow of Universal Studios the Black Tower I mean mm-hmm. like I would live a block and a half away from Universal Studios so every day I went to work I had to drive past the billboards announcing which movies were coming out for the spring, the summer, whatever, uh, and it just kept it. It kept me focused, right? And I went to work at a Seven Eleven uh, at Riverside and Coanga, and that is, you know, then I started writing, and that's, you know, what I did. I, uh, and you know, the very first script I wrote, Last of the Dog, really, the very first script I wrote. Yeah, and it just was a kind of a I I just had this inspiration I remember it you know I had a girlfriend at the time which you know that was new for me because I was a total nerd um, but we'd been going out for a while I haven't been doing any I hadn't done any writing and I it was like I was really seriously questioning my work ethic my motive but in all fairness I was also working the night shift at 7-eleven so you know it was, out. Uh, you know you do what you have to do but I remember going out. I had this idea. I just suddenly, you know, it's like, you know, you know, like a lightning bolt of inspiration. And I remember going out to dinner with her, and I think her sister was along, and we had pizza at this place not too far from here. And, uh, and I pitched the whole story to her. And they were both, like, staring at me like, we're trying to eat pizza, man. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but I was so excited about this story. I remember I had this, oh, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and and in that, you know, in those days, it was going to be, Louis Gates was going to be a bounty hunter, and it wasn't going to be Barbara Hershey, but it was an old professor that he tracked down, so it was a, you know, Louis Gates, I wanted it to be kind of a father-son story, so, you know, uh-huh. so, and I pitched this whole thing, and they were like, well, it sounds good, you know, I guess, but and so, anyway, that's, that was the real seed, and then I went away, and I went you know, and then I found a way to write it. I just got, I wrote it in like, I don't know, I want to say two and a half weeks, dude. And then I thought, okay, I got to show this around somehow. So I did the, you know, I did the stuff like, 
I don't know, I, I snuck onto the Warner's lot and I had about five of them, my scripts in manila envelopes and I just went around to producers' offices and I just walked in and I set the script on the inbox and I t- and they, they would say, thank you. Oh, nice. And I'd turn around and walk out. <laughs> cool, pretty cool. <laughs> and that led actually to a meeting at Martin Ransahoff Productions. Get out of nope, here. Nope, nope. Everybody, you know, I never heard anything from anybody but Mart, uh, Kathy Shulman maybe or somebody at... Martin Ransahaw Productions read the script, took the time, and my cover letter, and had me in for a meeting. Very cool. Freaking Ice Station Zebra, Martin Ransahaw. Cool. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? And so I was like, wow, that was cool. Uh, but around the same time, I met this guy in uh, 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven, the 7-Eleven I worked at, dude, was like Celebrity Hub. I mean, it... <laughs> and and wannabe screenwriter hub and every you know nice. wannabe musician hub so there every but there were a lot of cool people that would come in and in those days Universal Amphitheater was a was a venue at the top of the hill at Universal Studios and and they always had great concerts in the summer so nine times out of ten all of those artists would come in to the Seven Eleven in their park their limo and come in grab beer, <laughs> to get cigarettes or whatever cigarettes yeah. booze whatever and away they'd go to their parties or whatever so. I saw a lot of people in there, but one of the things that happened is I befriended this guy who was trying to be a screenwriter, and he had a, a, a mutual a group of friends that were all trying to be screenwriters, so I kind of joined that group. It was like a six-pack of wannabe screenwriters, <laughs> and and so I hung out with them, and we, you know, we would meet once a week for burgers at this great old place called Rocky's, which is no longer there, but... You know, Rocky was an ex-fighter, and he had the broken nose, the greasy hair, a cigarette dangling off his lip, the ash falling cool. on the burger that he's cooking for you, and it was perfect, <laughs> dude. It was perfect. They were the best burgers and the coldest beer, and so we would meet, and we would talk about our scripts and our stories, and we'd go to movies together, and we'd talk about movies, and we'd talk about what we liked, what we hated, and I... And, and, and in those days, I, I loved everything. So I was getting a, a new lesson in being opinionated and, and critical thinking about movies rather than just, oh, joy, oh, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy. I just saw a movie. Uh, so it was great. It was, you know, and they, they were all gr- great guys. And one of the guys uh, had a friend who was an executive at Paramount. Um, and... He read the script that I he read Last of the Dog and he said, "Wow, this is pretty good. Do you mind if I show it to my friend at Paramount?" Like, no, not at all. No. And so that that was the beginning of my exodus out of Seven Eleven, because I went down and uh, they actually read it, and uh, they they called me up for a meeting, and I was literally like you know like driving down, taking off my checkered Seven Eleven shirt. And trying to, you know, like changing as I went onto the lot. I had no agent. I had nothing, dude. Mm-hmm. And and I met the head of story, and the, the executive was in there. And they uh, they said, "Look, we got to tell you, there's a reader here at Paramount. He's been here for like 300 years, and uh, he's really old, and he hates everything. Uh, <laughs> and he loved your script, so that's why wow. I'm reading you." <laughs> And he said, you know, like he, he you know, so I, I thought, okay, that's cool. He said, look, we kicked it upstairs. We don't know what's going to happen. We can't, uh-huh. no promises, but you're somebody we're going to keep an eye on. That's kind of the, that was the cool. gist right. of the meeting. And so literally a week later, I get a call out of the blue from a William Morris agent, Peter Turner, said, hey, 
you know, I got a script here that I just read that I thought was pretty good, and let's have lunch. Well, it turns out that executive had sent him the script, said, you better keep an eye on this guy or sign this guy or whatever. Nice. I don't know. Very cool. So I went and had lunch, and we shook hands, and suddenly I had an agent at William Morris. And I came home, and I was like over the moon. I thought, okay, this is it. I've made it. I'm, I, I did. <laughs> I called my parents. I did. Well... Cut to a year later, I'm still working at 7-Eleven, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's how it goes. <laughs> I'm working at 7-Eleven, and, and I'm you know writing a second script, and he's getting me some meetings and things. But that's just how long it takes a long time. It, it yeah. really takes a long time. And, and uh, it, 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 forces of nature have to come together in a specific way that creates the friction that creates a bolt of lightning for you to get an opportunity. And that's all I really want. I just want, just give me an opportunity, you know? Uh, and that's all every, anybody that that's ready to go needs. is just that opportunity. And that opportunity eventually came about a year after I had the, the William Morris agency. Um, I had, uh, met, um, uh, an executive at Paramount, uh, named David Kirkpatrick. And uh, so I'm I'm checking out people at 7-Eleven one day, and I get a call on the phone, and, and it's and it's David. And he said, "Hey, I'm in the neighborhood. I'm going to drop by." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." And I'm like, and I hang up the phone, and I'm like, "Oh, fuck! He's going to see me working at a 7-Eleven." They're going to say, "Yeah, he's going to drop by 7-Eleven yeah, or your like, place." Oh yeah. my god, this is the worst, you know. So he comes by, we sit down in the back room literally you know scrunched together in a small back room full of cigarettes and porno magazine stacks everything's mm -hmm. there and I'm, i must have looked like the saddest sack you'd ever seen because he said tab he's looking around at this place we got to get you out of here you know and i'll never forget that he came in on my birthday and he said those words and literally within a week i was i had a i had my first gig at paramount I was wondering, did you happen to catch the professional football contest on television last night? No, I didn't. Oh, it was most exhilarating. The Giants of New York took on the Packers of Green Bay. And in the end, the Giants triumphed by kicking an oblong ball made of pigskin to a big H. It was a most ripping victory. Son, I'm just going to tell you this one time. Yes, sir. You want to keep working here. Stay off the drugs. Yes, sir. Can you make my hair look like this? Oh, man, what you want to make your hair look like that for? Well, I like the way you wear your hair. Wear it natural. That's good, man. You know, I wish more of the young children today would wear their hair natural like Dr. Martin Luther King did. That's right. You ain't never seen Dr. Martin Luther King with no messy jerry curl on his head. Ain't that right? Amen. Dr. King ain't come walk around like that. You know, sweet, I met Dr. Martin Luther King once. And you lying. You ain't never met Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah, I met Dr. Martin Luther King in 1962 in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm walking down the street, minding my own business, just walking off, feeling good. I walk around the corner, man woke up, hit me in my chest, right? I fall on the ground, right? And I look up, and Dr. Martin Luther King, I say, Dr. King! He said, oops, I thought you were somebody else. 
So my first job was writing a script for Eddie Murphy at Paramount, uh, which, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy had just come out of Saturday Night Live in those days, and he had just uh, signed a huge deal for $15 million. I mean, mean, I don't know what that would be in 2019 dollars, but, you know, in those days, it was a big deal. And he had just made 48 hours, I think, so he was a bona fide movie star. And I think, you know, Paramount honestly was looking for, they were developing a lot of material for Eddie, a lot of ideas, and they were a lot, you know, and and so they were looking for new, uh, i.e. cheap writers to come in and and develop some of those ideas and and get a quick script on some of those ideas, and and then they would sort of like, okay, see where they fell in the, you know, in all of the material being developed, and if they really liked something, uh, they would bring more experienced and more expensive writers onto it to develop it further. I think that's kind of how it worked. So I was the, I was that newbie cheap writer, but I wrote a script um, and uh, it was well received. And they immediately put me on something uh, else that had a higher profile in their estimation. Uh, that was a, a, a little higher on the ladder. Uh, and that script, uh, it was called king for a day when i came onto it and it was based on an art buckwald ah, article okay about an african prince mm-hmm. who comes to america and you know uh, has all sorts of misadventures mm-hmm. so i wrote a draft of it and uh and i was you know i i made the classic uh new uh or sometimes not even new but classic mistake screenwriter mistake and I literally had a meeting. The producer was a Frenchman named Alain Bernheim, mm-hmm. and he was, you know, an older gentleman. Uh, uh, and and he and I uh, had a meeting. I had been thrust on him probably because by Paramount's recommendation of, oh, he just wrote a great script. We're going to get him to work on this. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I met him, and and then we had lunch, and then uh, we went in and had a meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg. Mm-hmm. So I'm in there, and, uh, you know, Jeffrey's talking about his vision of the movie and everything, and I want it to be this. It's going to be lots, lots of physical comedy, blah, blah, blah. you got to really you know, milk Eddie for what he's, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, great, okay, cool, sounds awesome. So I walk out, and I'm literally walking down the, the stairwell with Alan, and he, and he, you know, he pulls me aside and says, listen, don't, and I sound like a Russian, but uh, everything he <laughs> says, don't listen. Don't listen to him. I know what this movie is. <laughs> you know, like I'm, a, and I'm like, holy shit, what? You know, so I'm literally, uh, it, it, you know, these guys are at opposite ends in terms of their vision of the movie, and I didn't know what to do, honestly, Craig. I just was like a new. I was just trying to get it. You know, I just had, was happy. I had a second job. I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. I just wanted to do a good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I was really confident and smart, I would have said, okay. We need another meeting right now, right? Because we we're not on the same page with him, and he's the president of production. Oh, by the way, mm-hmm. he greenlights the fucking movie, mm-hmm. so we got to get on the same page, and we all got to be happy, and then I can go away and write something that everybody will be happy with. Right. Instead, I went away and wrote something trying to please everybody, and I it sucked. Ended up it pleasing sucked. nobody. Yeah, I got summarily fired after turning in the first draft. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so I didn't think much about that script for a long time. In fact, not only did I get fired, but 
I, you know, I was on unemployment shortly thereafter, and I didn't work again for a year, dude. Wow. So I was like, oh, God. So my, my, my Hollywood dreams have already hit a speed bump kind of thing, yeah. right? And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm hearing things through the grapevine about, uh, you know, the, that this movie coming out that Paramount's making called Coming to America. <laughs> and... So I and you know I, I don't I don't have to go into that story, but that you know was the story that that was really the first time that a major studio uh, was sued, sued by, in, in, yeah. in, in, and and had to open up their books in terms of accounting and all this stuff. But the upshot of it was that Eddie went off and made a movie called Coming to America about an African prince that comes to the United <laughs> States, has a bunch of misadventures, and Alan Bernheim and and. Uh, Oh, Art Buckwald cried foul, mm. and they sued Paramount, and they won. Yeah, yeah. They won. So, I mean, I remember getting a call from uh, Pierce O'Donnell, who was uh, the attorney for Buckwald, and he said, look, I need to depose you, man. Mm. You know, I'm sorry. You're, you're part of this. And I said, I know, I'm, but I don't really understand what's going on. I mean, he said, have you seen Coming to America? I said, no, I haven't seen Coming to America. He said, okay, go see Coming to America. <laughs> and you'll know I'm what we're talking up. about. <laughs> I'm hanging up, then you call me back. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I so went to see it. And, and I'm watching it, and I'm going, oh, I wrote that. Mm. Oh, I wrote that. Oh, I wrote that bit, too. Mm. And so I called him back and said, okay, I get it. You know. So uh, anyway, long story short, Buckwald won, but Paramount appealed. Mm-hmm. The day Buckwald won, I called Pierce O'Donnell and said, "What should I do?" Uh, he said, "Well, you should hire an attorney." I said, "Do you want?" I said naively, "Do you want to be my attorney?" He said, "I can't be your attorney. That's called conflict of interest." Right, you right. Know? He said, "But I'll give you the number of somebody." And he gave me the number of somebody. I called him up, and it was an attorney who, ironically, used to be an attorney at Paramount, so he knew all those fuckers wow. over there. Okay. So he said, "Let me just make a phone call." Tab. He made a phone call. Uh, basically saying, you know, you know, you just lost this trial to Art Buckwald. What do you think about settling with Tab? Mm. And they said, we'd be happy to settle with Tab. Okay. Uh, and they did. They settled with me, uh, sort of a six-figure, low six-figure sum. Uh, and I was never allowed to claim credit on the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was never allowed to, you know, a, a few other things. Right, right, right. Talk about the money that I got or mm-hmm. what... The what the amount was hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> so uh, the uh, but you didn't have to go back to seven eleven. Yeah, that's and, for sure. And, and, you know, and of course Pierce O'Donnell later in his book he wrote a book called Fatal Subtraction and he's like, uh, it wasn't lost on me that Tab Murphy walked away with you know a hundred thousand dollars and my client got nothing because he was appealed over and over. And I'm like, Pierce, <laughs> you gave me the number of the attorney to call. It was your recommendation. Right. Jeez, <laughs> come on, sour grapes. Anyway, yeah. uh, so for the longest time, I had a, I had a poster, a framed poster of Coming to America in my office, and over <laughs> the writing credits, I just taped my settlement check. <laughs> That's great. That's cool. I like that. So very early in my career, like really early in my career, and I'm embroiled in the biggest lawsuit ever brought against a major studio. Honestly, wow. Craig, I thought I'd be blacklisted. I thought I'd fucking yeah, yeah. work again. On, I mean, honestly, but... You know, when I thought about it later, you know, it really behooved Paramount to settle with me because mm-hmm. I was a young writer, a writer they liked, you know, and who knows what I would have become. I mean, in their minds, yeah. you know, if they blackball me or they, you know, like whatever, take me to the mat 
and I go on to become the next Steven Spielberg, right. they would, you know, so it was in their best interest to like, okay, play fair, right, mm-hmm. with this guy. And sure enough, you know, like, I mean, you know, years later, uh, I ended up, it paid off for them and it paid off for me too. Because I followed Jeffrey over to Disney. Uh, oh, okay, cool. And he gave me my, you know, he wanted me to come and write for them over uh, at Disney Animation. So mm-hmm. it all worked out in the end, but there was some, uh, there was some soul-searching moments in that, mm-hmm. that whole process, believe me. Wow. How, so what was your next gig after that? Well, my next gig after that was Gorillas in the Mist. On December 16th, 1966, Diane Fossey left a life of comfort and privilege and went alone into the mountains of Africa. Some of them believe a woman living alone up there has to be mad. She was determined to make contact with the wild mountain gorillas and save them from extinction. Someone wanted her stopped. In a land of beauty, wonder, and danger, she risked her life. Get down! Don't move! She would follow a dream. You, my beautiful, becoming a legend. And fall in love. Do you think I'm weird? Yes, I do, absolutely, without question. I also think you are wonderful. But she would risk it all. Save the gorillas in the mist. You know, I had written some scripts and I'd gotten meetings and everything. And I, one of the guys that I had met who really liked my writing was a guy named Roger Birnbaum. Oh, cool. Uh huh. Yep. And he at the time uh, was working uh, for Goober Peters. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I got a call and I had met him, you know, like several months before. And then I got a call out of the blue from him saying, will you come in and talk to, we, we want to talk to you about a project at Warner Brothers. And so I went in and uh, sat down with uh, Roger. I don't know if I met Peter at that time or not, Peter Goober. Mm-hmm. But he said, listen, we got this uh, property. We have this Life magazine article we just optioned uh, by Harold T. Hayes about Diane Fossey, uh, who was uh, just you know, a few months, short months before recently, yeah, murdered, uh, up on in the Bronx <laughs> at her uh, a research camp, and I was very familiar with Diane Fossey and Birote Galdicus and Jane Goodall, and mm-hmm. that again just was part of my you know like uh, I loved stories about wilderness and nature and things. Mm-hmm. I always had an outside interest in that stuff, so I was very, I was familiar with with Diane. And they said, we have this article, and we also have a, 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 some documentary footage shot by this filmmaker that we'll put you in touch with. And uh, we want you to write a script about you know, her, her life on the mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here's the deal. We need it really quick. And you're not going to get paid a lot of money. <laughs> so, you're going to get paid scale, man. Uh, we, we, you know, so and I was like, okay, I'm in, I'm in. I was very excited. And I and as I and I took and I went home and I watched these documentaries and I really got a sense of who Diane was. And then I I, I kind of read the article and then I it, the the movie just kind of like like that moment in last when I was talking about last the dogman the movie just gelled in my brain. Mm-hmm. And I and I got it and I literally wrote that script in two and a half weeks again. Wow. Um, 
So I, um, um, and I turned it in and, and they flipped. They, they, they loved it. And they, uh, they turned it into Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers flipped. Lucy Fisher uh, loved the script. Uh, and uh, they were like, okay, we're off. I mean, we love, we're, we're going to make this movie. It's great. And, you know, so that was a, that was huge for me. Um, uh, in terms of like, you know, like sitting at home and trying to write a script one day and then walking uh, across the Warner Brothers lot with Lucy Fisher and Chevy Chase, you know, up and she introduces me and he's like, wow, you know, like that, that kind of stuff just can happen overnight. You know, that's weird, strange, cool, bizarre thing about Hollywood, you know. Um, so... It, it, what was so I was like oh I was very excited and, and Warner Brothers took a two page double page ad out in Variety uh, to announce the project and they had at that time uh, talked to believe it or not Bob Rafelson to direct wow. Wow. and Rafelson had committed and so they took this double page ad out in Variety I still have it framed up at my parents house somewhere uh, announcing and we couldn't call it Gorillas in the Mist because the Gorillas in the Mist was the name of Diane's book that she wrote. Book, and yeah. Universal owned that book, apparently. I, I mean, I had heard that we... So they named it Heaven and Earth, uh, which later became the title of an Oliver Stone movie, by the way. Mm-hmm. And Oliver Stone was somebody who they wanted to direct that movie. So I, anyway, it's a very strange. So once that an- announcement was made, then shit hit the fan, man, because I, unbeknownst to me, but well-known to the producers... Universal was developing the same property. They had a writer who'd been on it for a year and a half, oh, and wow. Hamilton Phelan. Mm-hmm. And and suddenly there was this full blown race on between these two studios to get this movie made. Mm-hmm. And that race included who by the the filmmaker who had made the documentaries, who was by now this time a friend of mine, Bob Nixon, you know, being sent to Africa to Rwanda. Uh, uh, you know, like literally helicoptered from the Warner Brothers lot down to LAX on a plane, boom, to to try to secure the rights to film the gorillas in the national park in the oh, and and they were and Universal was doing the same thing. So there was this this race on to 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 sign up people that had access to the gorillas so that they could make the movie. They could sign, you know, like. And, you know, I had something in my script that Anna Hamilton Phelan didn't have in her script, which was the whole, you know, National Geographic photographer angle, because mm-hmm. uh, we had the rights to his story. Uh, they didn't. And, you know, she had, of course, Gorillas in the Mist, the book. So we had to. Be, it was a oh, fucking nightmare, dude. Like for me, because um, I just was like, by this time, after the whole R. Buckwald thing, I was like, doesn't anything just go the way you kind of <laughs> right. do it down? Man. And so, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the both studios, I think the government of Rwanda finally said, you know what, stop everybody. No one's going to shoot the gorillas. No one's going to film the gorillas unless you two, you know, figure this out. Get your shit together, yeah. They got this. So it became a co-production between Warner Brothers and, and Universal. Uh, literally domestic distribution and, uni- and, and and international distribution was decided by a coin flip. Wow. So between the, the you know, the, whoever was in that moment uh, heading the studios. And Warner Brothers was in charge of the production of the movie. Um, 
and uh, Universal was in charge of continuing to develop the script. So weirdly, I was like, yay, Warner Brothers is making the movie, which is who the script I wrote my script for. But mm-hmm. Universal, you know, like, uh, so, you know, and I... I had a sister who was actually working at Universal at the time, you know, so she would read, you know, the, the kind of the inner office memos about the drafts that were being turned in, and she would funnel them my way. Still prefer the Murphy draft, you know, which was, you know, nice for my ego, but uh-huh. ultimately it was a, you know, so it was a bizarre sort of amalgamation of the two scripts in some ways. Um, and I don't blame the other writer for, you know, weighing heavily on, on her draft. You know, like including most of the things she did, or or even, I don't know if she tossed my script in the trash or what. But you know, it's it. Unfortunately, it it was a lesson in the competitive nature of credits and writing in this town, mm-hmm. uh, of multiple writers on a movie, and it's, uh, boy, it's just uh, it's never it, that that's never an easy thing. You know, I've won arbitrations where I've gotten credit, and I've lost them where I've. I felt I deserved credit, and it's it's never easy in that sort of time when writers are kind of pitted against each other, you know, because credits are everything. Credits mean, you know, your quote goes up. Uh, it also means you get money, uh, you know, on a movie, uh, you know, where your, your deal is structured in terms of whether you receive sole or shared credit or no credit. So it's uh yeah, I was a that was a that was a big. But the, the bright spot of that, and I, that's why on that movie, uh, if you really look at the credits, I only have shared story credit. Story by, yeah, with Anna, yeah. That was all a negotiation, dude. That, mm-hmm. Oh, that whole thing was a negotiation. Now, was that like through the WGA or just amongst the players? Warner Brothers listed Anna and I as screenwriters on that movie, and she had a shit fit. I don't really know Anna that well. Mm-hmm. And I was... Uh, I was young and trying to carve a name out for myself as well, and uh, but I, you know, and my my agent at the time was like, because you know Anna was like, I'm going to arbitration. This is bullshit. I deserve sole credit, and I want sole credit. I'm going to arbitration, uh, and so my agent was like, look, arbitration can go either way, dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know you may get credit on the movie and you may not you're a young writer you need credit on this movie right so i think we positioned a i i i think through my agents and and the studio warner brothers they uh um offered her sole screenwriting credit and me sole story credit mm-hmm. well she balked at that <laughs> too oh, she said I want shared story credit and sole screenplay credit. And so, like, again, it was at, you know, and I don't know, if I'd have had a different agent or I'd have been in a different place in my career where I didn't really give a shit, I'd said, fuck it, uh, let's go to arbitration. Maybe, yeah. Because yeah. I feel like the work I did was really good on that, on Considerable. that movie. And and so, um, but I wasn't. And I was, uh, I again, somebody put a bug in my ear, a fear bug of like, well, what if you get no credit? Then you're just going to, you know, like you're going to be back at square one. So I opted to share story credit with her and she could have sole screenplay credit. So in that moment, in that decision, I gave up a lot of money because I got mm. no bonus for story credit. Mm. And... Uh, 
uh, and I gave up. I kind of gave up on the work that I did in some ways. You know, I didn't defend it in, that I, in a way that I would have. I think later in my career, mm-hmm. uh, because I was scared. Yeah, I needed that credit, and ultimately, you know, like I mean, that probably was the the best uh, course of action because you know, down the road, I you know, the the writing on that movie was nominated for an Academy Award. And I was nominated alongside Anna because yeah, I yeah. shared story credit. So it led to an Academy Award nomination. I can't really bon- I can't really complain too much. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was going to say that um, in that particular case, um, what I take away from it and watching the film to this day is uh, a that whenever I think of that film, I think of both writers, and I think most people do. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, and I listen. You're, uh, and I think you know that's the other thing about Hollywood too. It's a very small town, Craig, mm-hmm. and you know you do good work on a project, and 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 Warner's you know rewarded me with an overall deal after that. No, oh, cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, they were like, okay, you know what? Y- y- we know y- you're getting shafted on the credits on this movie. We know what we know how much work we we wouldn't be involved in this movie if it weren't for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as a as a reward, they put me under an overall, which was great, and I got to write some really cool stuff uh, under that overall. Both of which, the, the things that I'm thinking of, both of which didn't get made, but mm-hmm. it, that was also an illustration of how difficult it truly is to get a movie made, mm-hmm. which I think I was a little naive about as well. You know, so um, so yeah, you know what, good work finds a way to get either known or get read or get whatever it needs to be and and I I probably should have trusted that a little more but in in hindsight you, you know I wouldn't change anything I did what I believed was the right thing to do I harbored no resentment against Anna whatsoever because mm-hmm. at the end of the day I put myself in her position and if I had she'd gone to Africa dude she'd done research she'd been on this movie for a year and a half believing mm-hmm. that writing this story and it was her she was passionate about it, it was from her heart too i i i mean you know so in uh, i uh, made peace with her effort to have sole screenwriting credit because i probably would have done the same damn thing mm-hmm. okay well i will say um another thing that i take away from the whole gorillas in the mist um experience um interestingly i heard some people balk at the fact that they that her character was not quote unquote that likable but I appreciated that about the film. That oh, she, dude, they would have hated my draft. Yeah, she was obsessive, uh, and I understand that. I mean, some of my favorite characters in literary history are characters that I can, you know, I'm sometimes sorry to say I can identify with, like Victor Frankenstein, Captain Ahab, yeah. you know, and yeah. Dr. Henry Jekyll, all of who were decent people, but they became so obsessed that they kind of veered off into some dark territory. And I like the fact that, I mean, one of the problems I have with the film Braveheart, as much as I enjoy it, is that the character seems to have no flaws other than being maybe a bad judge of character. Maybe he should have chosen his friends better, you know? (laughs) But real people have faults, and somehow within all of these faults, they manage to do something great and change their world. To me, that's much more intriguing and i see that when i see gorillas in the mist yeah no i agree i agree i think i think we humans inhabit the gray area for the most part unless you're like mother Teresa or something and you know uh the 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 most you know compelling characters are the most complex ones the ones that aren't afraid 
uh, you know, to shine a light on, 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 you know, behavior that isn't necessarily, you know, altruistic or, you know, good. Uh, and Diane was, she, you know, like all you have to do is read some of the journals of people that work with her, dude. She was fucking tough. She was not. She didn't suffer fools easily. She didn't really like people that much. Um, she, uh, you know, uh, she could be brutal. She could be, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, abusive almost, uh, you know, verbally abusive to a lot of the students that worked with her. Um, I know firsthand. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, it, yeah, she was a very complex and in toward the end, she kind of, she went off the rocker, man. She just kind of lost it a little bit. She would speak to her students in sort of gorilla grunts, you know, I mean, it was like fucking weird, you know? Uh, so, I mean, I, uh, you know, uh, but I understood, I understood a woman who, you know, uh, valued you know, these, these primates more than she valued other human beings and, and felt like uh, she was the last bastion of, of hope for them in terms of fending off what she would believe was the, the inevitable in- extinction at the hands of poachers and, and international, uh, you know, animal trade and things like that. So, you know, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, I don't think I would have worked for her, but on the other hand, I, you have to admire her dedication. You know what this is? I'll call it a wild guess. Uh, an arrow? Cheyenne arrow. Dog soldier, to be exact. Dog soldier? Within the Cheyenne tribe, there used to be a military society made up of the strongest and bravest men. They were fierce fighters, unyielding. They called themselves Hotametonia, dog men. The cavalry called them dog soldiers or suicide soldiers. They often acted as rear guard, a sort of um, sacrificial decoy, so the rest of the tribe could escape. You see? I checked with the Forest Service, and nobody's running stock up in that country. And nobody rides unshot horses except... Indians, that's what you're implying, isn't it? Well... You don't seriously believe Cheyenne dog soldiers are running around loose in the Oxbow, do you? Hot them! 
we were talking about uh, being influenced by watching maybe a little too much TV. Nah, I know this thing is too much. But watching a bit of TV growing up and being influenced by various movies and shows. And I was curious as to whether you could name maybe one or two or two or three movies that you saw on TV that really instilled the cinema thirst in you. I mean, for me, two movies that I saw at the movies would be Michael Crichton's original Westworld and The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. They totally put me over the edge and said, yeah, I want to do that when I grow up. But as far as seeing movies on TV that just turned my creative crank and were probably the final push me over the line, it would be Hitchcock's The Birds and probably Airport. Those those were two movie movies that just made me fall in love with movies. I'm curious as to whether you could name a couple on your end. Well, certainly. Um, The first would be Wizard of Oz. Cool. That movie had a profound effect on my childhood. And, of course, uh, it it also, um, it was really interesting because, you know, it aired one time a year. Mm-hmm. And everybody was aware of it. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. knew it was a coming up. And, you know, you basically had one chance to plan your evening around that movie. Yeah. And if you missed it, dude, you were fucked because yeah, everybody else the dude. next day would be talking about it at school and, yep. a- and acting out scenes. And, and you would be just like, oh, my God, I got to wait another <laughs> year to see it. Right. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> So it was, uh, so that movie, but that movie, more than the fact that it, you know, just, uh, you know, was something we looked forward to, it was, I think it uh, aired usually around the holidays, once a year. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure if it was Thanksgiving or, but there were a couple of movies. I mean, King Kong, dude, King Kong was a movie. Nice. These movies, like Wizard of Oz, King Kong, uh, it, it, it just, uh, you know, like, just were like lightning bolts straight into my very juvenile creative muse in those days. They just mm-hmm. instilled in me a sense of wonder, a sense of storytelling. Um, and that, you know, a, a sense of awe, you know, that you could only get by, you know, like being so involved in a story that took you way outside the realm of your you know, experience into mm-hmm. fantasy land or in the case of King Kong, you know, an isolated island where a giant ape ruled. I mean, just that just like, like just fired my synapses like crazy, even as a kid. Awesome. Awesome. Well, awesome. That is a perfect segue for me anyway, into Last of the Dogmen, mm-hmm. which for me would be, uh, I believe the, a lot of French critics back in the 60s coined the phrase um, uh, a testament film, which, you know, they said, and some agree, some don't, that every filmmaker has one film that completely, more than any other film, sums up what they're about. If I had to pick a testament film for me that sums up Tab Murphy, it would be Last of the Dogmen. Um, now you might not agree, but <laughs> for me, it would be Lance and No, I think you're right on. I think you're spot on. I mean, a lot of people have asked yeah. me about the movie over the years, and you know, it's uh, it, 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 it's you know, I have a sort of a, a you know a, a you know, not I wouldn't say a love hate relationship with the movie. I mean, I love the movie. It certainly is an expression of everything I was about at that particular time period in my life. And, mm-hmm. and and some of the elements that I remain very passionately about. Um, but, 
you know, it, it, you know, I mean, it, the, on the business side, it didn't, you know, I was in post-production on that movie when the company that financed it was going bankrupt. So mm-hmm. that movie never, in my opinion, got a fair shake or a fair shot at finding an audience. And it died and it, on the vine very quickly. And and so from that standpoint, it always was disappointing. Mm-hmm. And look, you know, I was a first-time director. I made my share of mistakes. It, you know, I look at that film now and... You know, it's it's hard not to look at the mistakes when I when I see it. Um, but that's just the arts in general, yeah. True enough, true enough. And and uh, but uh, so so it so I've always struggled a little bit with it. But in that regard, that it didn't sort of propel me into a phase of my career that I always had, you know, my eye on, and that I always hoped that that movie would open the door to. And quite frankly, it just didn't. Mm-hmm. This is a money-driven business, and no matter how good the movie is, if it doesn't go out and make money, chances are, especially if you're a first-time director, you're going to be very difficult to get a second chance. Well, for those who may not be familiar with the film, and I'm sure there are many, could you give us a quick um, synopsis or a quick capsule of, of, of what it's all about? Well, Last Dogman is, uh, I guess you could say it's a little bit of... Uh, a, a little bit of... Lost Horizon mm-hmm. meets Dances with Wolves, if you will. Cool. That's a perfect description. Um, I never thought of it that way, but yeah. Yeah, it's just a it's a modern Western fantasy. That's how I always thought of it, which uh, is a story of a of 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 a bounty hunter, a modern day bounty hunter tracker, uh, the character played by Tom Berenger, who is. Uh, who goes into the wilderness in search of some uh, uh, convicts that have escaped uh, on a, uh, during a, a bus crash, a prison bus crash. And he discovers evidence that they've actually been killed by something out there in the wilderness. And uh, so he's intrigued and uh, he, he finds a, an arrow at the scene and he's intrigued and he takes it to Barbara Hershey who's an anthropologist who's doing he's working on a dig site a Native American dig site in Montana and eventually convinces her to go with him into that you know secluded wilderness area and then see if what they can find and see if they can uncover the mystery uh, and that's what they do. They go in and, and you know, that's cutting to the chase. They discover a lost tribe of Cheyenne Indians living the way they had lived 150 years ago, uh, untouched uh, by uh, modern, the modern world and, and by man and undiscovered. And I, you know, I kind of, uh, the, the riff I took it on was an actual piece of history. Uh, I based the incident uh, on the Sand Creek Massacre mm. uh, in Colorado of Cheyenne Indians in 1864, yes, I think. Um, and so I took that real incident and I posited this kind of fantastic theory that a group of Indians escaped that massacre and 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 went deep into the wilderness in Montana and found a valley, a secluded valley, uh, where they stayed and remained hidden for many, many years. Now, like, I mean, you, you know, most people would be like, oh, that's impossible, you know, with, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of like Bigfoot, you know, <laughs> it's like, 
Mm-hmm. It, it, it's hard to believe until you go and stand on a precipice and overlook wilderness, hundreds of square miles of wilderness, where there's no roads, there's yeah. people, and you go, hmm, maybe, just yeah, you know. So that was my you know like what if movie, what if, and it and it just mm-hmm. it was all fueled by my my love of outdoors of wilderness of native american culture of mm-hmm. you know um you know a sort of the old throwback rugged you know character like you know bounty hunter guy his own man kind of in a way he's also you know he feels empathy for the indians because he feels much the same way he's a man out of time and mm-hmm. feels the modern world is closing in on him and yeah, in in ways that he can't control. So when he, you know, when he's with the Indian tribe in that secluded valley, along with Barbara Hershey, it's a very idyllic kind of existence for a while. But then it's threatened, and one thing leads to another. And of course, you know, uh, at the end, he has to make a choice uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, sort of uh, sacrifice his own freedom a little bit to uh, to ensure their survival, which he does, as all heroes do. <laughs> Uh, that's kind of the the movie, and it was you know it 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 also is kind of romantic and uh, mm-hmm. in in some ways, and even though I didn't really want to push that angle too far, I think I pushed it just enough that it uh, yeah you know it it kind of it kind of works and uh, but that's you know that was Last of the Dogmen, and I. I think I told you last time we I I wrote that script very early in my career, it's like one of the first scripts I ever wrote, and the, and it was mm-hmm. a little raw, and it was, uh, uh, you know, I was still a neophyte screenwriter, so it had it, but I hooked up with a producer who really saw the value in it and and understood the story and fell in love with the idea as well, and and so we worked together on the script. Uh, I mean, you know, he we would talk about ideas and. He's the one who convinced me to turn an old professor that Louis Gates goes in mm. wilderness with to a, a woman. So I uh-huh. turned her into an old woman because I thought, well, it'd be an interesting dynamic if this this character played by Tom Berenger goes into the wilderness with somebody like Helen Mirren, who's quite a bit old. <laughs> and they yeah. can't have a real romantic relationship, but they have a, re- a respect for one another that if, mm-hmm. if I was only 20 years younger and if I was only 20 years older kind of thing. Right, 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 right. And right. he's like, and so that was cool, but then he's like, why don't we age her down and just go for it? And I was like, oh, no, because I just felt, oh, that's going to be so cliche and it's going to overshadow yeah. the, the, the other parts of the story that I really felt were important you know but ultimately i came around and 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 it and it became what it is and and that's just the you know the the sort of the winding trail of of developing a story and and uh and staying open and uh and in many ways you know it made sense from uh the point of view of getting the movie financed because uh you know, Hollywood likes to throw money at things that they've seen before, (laughs) rather than throw money at things they think are a little bit risky. So in those days, anyway, so. Well, actually, I'm glad you put it that way. God, this is kind of creepy how uh, in sync we are here. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, one of the things I had jotted down in my notes about Last of the Dogman, you know, a couple of bullet points that I wanted to to, to address. Um, I mean, first of all, I think what turns my crank about the film and what really grabbed me is that I grew up um, <clears throat> reading everything too. And uh, 
the Lost Civilization saga. For some reason, I never uh, thought about Lost Horizon. Duh. But, um, I mean, the Edgar Rice Burroughs stories were the ones that I was living. Oh, yeah, for uh, sure. Even more so than Tarzan, which we'll obviously get into later, yeah. were his stories, uh, The Land at Time for God, At the Earth's Core, all of those. Oh, yeah. See, I grew up on all that stuff. Absolutely. And it, you know what those movies do, what those stories do? They instill immediately... Uh, in you a sense of adventure a sense very much so a sense of discovery a sense of you know something that you know like has been lost or hidden that you are you know as a character or as a reader you know you go on this journey and you you discover that whatever lost civilization or lost temple or you know Mm -hmm. it's you know it's it's all it's the fuel that fired indiana jones you know exactly uh, ideal of finding something ancient that 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 was seemed to have been lost and mm-hmm. yeah there was, I, I loved I loved all that stuff and I'm I, and absolutely that fueled uh, that part of the storytelling uh, of that of of Last of the Dogmen and I think what really sells the story sells the premise as you said you know there's kind of a Bigfoot. <laughs> as a monster aspect of things. Yes. But I think what really sells it in the contemporary world is um, the fact that, um, I mean, just like you, I read those Edgar Rice Burroughs stories and others growing up, and then every Saturday morning I would get up and go on my bike in Willingboro, New Jersey, and go create adventures based on them with whatever I had at hand. The local creek, Mill Creek Park, which had this huge hill that people would slide down in the wintertime. And I would just use my imagination to create my own Burroughs Lost Civilization stories. But by the time we get to 1995, when Last of the Dogman was released, the Lost World saga was kind of hard to make work because everything had been explored. True enough. Maybe if you went to space or under the sea, maybe... But the fact that, and it, it just, duh, very commonplace, yeah, there's this whole area. There are large swaths, swaths, swashes of areas in the United States that still, believe it or not, most quote-unquote modern civilized civilization has never ventured into. Yeah. And the fact that you found <laughs> somehow to make the lost world or the lost civilization saga work in the modern day and actually be like, yeah, yeah, I I think I could see that. Yeah. I think that kind of tapped in the people who did see the film and the people who saw it later. I think it does kind of tap into a to an innate yeah, I wish this were true and I wish yeah. somebody would find a way to make it work. And I think those who see the film I think that's what clicks within them. And that's certainly that which clicked within me. I totally agree and I would add that I it also um in it it also sparks in them a yearning for a simpler time, a simpler. Very much so. I can't tell you how many you know, usually women, but some men. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, have have written me notes or something, and and they all you know say to some effect, "I wish it were true. I I mm-hmm, would live. Mm-hmm. I would love to live like that, or I'd love to be there with them." And the simplicity of just getting up. And, you know, uh, the only thing you need to worry about for the day is food and and being part of a community and living close to nature and 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 reconnecting to the natural world. That is a yearning that almost goes, you know, it's almost subconscious in a lot of people, because uh, that also was a big part of what Last of the Dogmen 
um, you know, it, to this day still gathers fans, which is there is a part of us as we, you know, continue into this modern world and surrounded by technology and electronics and our, we, we, we're losing touch with, uh, with the natural world. And I think it's such a soul nourishing and necessary part of our existence to, 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 you know, remind ourselves that we are connected to a whole uh, in terms of this planet and nature and, you know, everything about it. And, it, you know, to me, it's just, that's, you know, that's where I go to, you know, unwind and to, you know, mm-hmm. I take a walk in the woods, man. It's as simple yeah, yeah. as that. It's as simple as that. So that was also a part of why the movie continues to pick up fans and why people, even, you know, the hardcore fans have seen it 10, 20 times, mm-hmm. dude. Yeah. You know, because they revisit this idea. They they love to revisit this idea when their life gets so busy and harried. And, you know, on a Saturday afternoon or evening, they sit down with their husband and uh, what do we well, let's watch Last of the Dogman because we can just we it's a, it's like comfort food. You know, it is. It is. Yeah. And um, almost like the film or the plot of the film itself, where you kind of discover this small pocket of it. Um, of an old civilization that's called going back lost horizon kind of aspect. So is the film itself <laughs> like that as a film? Well, it because, is, it is, it, you know, it's, it, it's, I mean, there is a certain aspect of how the fuck did this film get made? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Because, well, listen, I, I'll just be candid with you about a few things please. right here. When my agent first saw it, you know, because we had a screening and he, he, afterwards he looked at me and said, uh, what he said, I would categorize categorize your movie as American primitive tab. <laughs> I was okay. Like, okay. What what does that mean? Explain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think what he was saying was, it's a it's not really a. This is not a 1995 movie about with a young director behind who's trying to you know show how flashy is with the camera and how right. how to you know like wow I'm just going to dazzle everybody with uh, my visual acuity and 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 all you know in terms of like no no it was very simple straightforward you know sort of like old fashioned filmmaking if you will even though that word I you know it's a it's you know, almost like you don't want to be tagged as that, yeah. you know. Uh, but there was, you know, I really trusted in the story. I trusted in Tom and Barbara. Uh, you know, my, my DP was terrific. And mm. we just didn't feel like this was a kind of story where we needed to do a lot of, you know, uh, fancy camera work or, or, or be um, self-indulgent or self-conscious right. in the way we made the movie. What I've always called those, look, Ma, I'm directing Sequences. Yes, yes, yes. No, <laughs> you know it. Really, the no, and that you know, I boarded the movie, and it was straight. But I will say, you know, like it was also it, the irony of 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 the how it came together, and that I was able to get it made was that the producer I spoke about earlier, Joel Michaels, was mm-hmm. a, a partner with um, Mario Casar. Mm-hmm. Mario and. Uh, his company, uh, Coralco at the time, were heavily involved in this movie. Joel had produced a lot of movies for Mario, and this was, I, I don't know if this was a, you know, like a payback or a favor, but hmm. Joel got to make this movie, produce this movie. I got to direct it. Mario presented it. Uh, it was financed by several other entities. 
Peralco's name was on it. Mario's name was on it. And uh, so I did. I turned in my first cut, and 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 I remember having a a meeting with Mario, and uh, he said, you know, I I think we're going to bring in another editor to take another pass at it. And I said, I've been working on it for months and months. I'm like, I was shocked. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, well, you know, the perception is the movie's a bit boring. Now, I, I, you know, but I accepted that criticism from Mario because this is a guy that's made Terminator, which is not right, a boring right. movie. So, right, right. You know, so I just thought, okay, you think it's boring, or maybe people, some people think it's boring, but that's fine. But that's, you know, so I had to suffer through, dude. I had to suffer through a recut of the movie that just absolutely was. And, and through no fault of the editor or anybody, but, you know, the, it, it just shredded it. It just shredded it, and it made no sense. And I, I went in and saw the cut, and I tried to be, you know, like with uh, – and it and I was just heartsick because this was a cut that they were then going to preview. And if the numbers, for whatever reason, were better with this bastardized cut, they were going to release this version of my movie. And it was, I was, so there was a, a couple of months in there where I was just, my heart was in my throat. I knew that the story I had written and the and the movie I had directed and the and 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 with all the help of everybody cut together and the David score and everything, it was a bit of a throwback. It wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. like it certainly wasn't Terminator or anything remotely resembling that type of movie in in tone or or pacing or anything. This was a this was a slower burn, and, you know, and I, so, thankfully, thank God, you know, at the end of the day, my cut previewed better every time. They tried it two or three times, and, and my cut previewed better every time, so. So what you see is basically, uh, you know, what I was, you know, was, was my movie. I mean, I will say also at the, um, at the end of the film, uh, I had originally wanted Tom Berenger's character, and, and, and there is a shot of him in jail looking out at the mountains. Uh, and uh, I, I wanted him to be in jail looking out at the mountains, but smiling and knowing, you know, that even though he's incarcerated and who knows what's going to happen to him, then we would cut to, then, the, you know, that, that he was protecting this mm -hmm. secret. Uh, and and her as well, Barbara Hershey's mm -hmm. character. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, like I got a lot of pressure, dude, be, uh, to uh, amend the end and to have somehow have Tom Berenger and Barbara Hershey's character re rejoin each other. You know, mm -hmm. um, so you know, I had to go back up and and reshoot the ending. Uh, or I agreed finally. I, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I just it, now the final version also has narration, which uh, which I resisted. Yeah, uh -huh. I you know that was born out of and this is again this is how executives think and you know I can sit here and criticize the reasoning and all that, but it is just what it is when you're dealing with people that aren't necessarily creative but are have money invested in something and they want as much of a return on that investment as they can possibly get. So at the mm -hmm. time that I was in post on, or not even in post, I think it was, uh, was shooting Last of the Dogman, um, 
Oh shoot! What was the the Brad Pitt movie that came out? Uh, what uh, River Runs Through It or, or Legends of the Fall or Legends of the Fall? And that had a that had a narration. Yeah, it did, didn't it? So somebody felt like our movie should have a narration. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I I tried to explain that narration is great if you're you know you're learning something new or it's shedding some light or there's a reason for it organically to exist um, mm-hmm. but I had never imagined a narration and so I, I just thought and, and then you know they hired they actually hired Jay Cox believe it or not Martin huh? <laughs> to write the narration and he I got a oh, okay. lovely email from him saying hey I've been hired to do this I know this is probably something you don't want but I I really love the movie, and I'll tr- try to do a great job. And he did, mm-hmm, great. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like in terms of the words. But yeah. I just felt like it was superfluous. I just didn't. It didn't need it. You exactly. You yeah. know, if you watch the movie without narration, you don't feel like, oh my god, I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> you know, yeah. or I've or I've lost something that the narration provided, some depth, some sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and also, uh, you know, like frankly, Tom. They wanted Tom to do it. He refused, you know, because he I, he knew I didn't want it. Right, right. They wanted Barbara to do it. She refused. Nice. Um, and, you know, and I appreciated that support. But So then they got Wilford Brimley because apparently he was uh, in, uh, you know, like uh, uh, had a break from selling oatmeal. And I, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so I was like, okay, so the narration is being done by a character that's not even in the movie. Even in the film. Yeah. Yeah. And I it's like, oh, my God, it just was. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. I mean, Wilford Brimley has an awesome voice. He does. And it's like a big old couch that you sink into. Yeah, but. Opening weekend, I remember watching that movie, uh, opening weekend, and sitting there, and right from the get-go, I was like, yeah, I, I love Wilford Brimley, he's cool and all. But what but is he doing in this he, movie? <laughs> right, he's not telling me anything that I can't just figure oh, out. No, no, myself. no, so that was, uh, this is all, I mean, I had to, you know, knuckle under, and, and uh, I refused to write it, I refused to do everything, and they basically said, well, we're doing it, you know, fuck you. I mean, it, you know, it, and that is an, a, 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 an illustration of how much power a first-time director wields, you know, really, right. which is zero. Um, and so, you know, it, it was tacked on, and I hated it. Uh, I hated it mostly, not because of, you know, the writing or, you know, the, that it was narration. I hated it because of where, where they spotted it, it just, just walked all over David Arnold's wondrous, beautiful, mm. romantic score. I was so I was so bummed, and I, you know, sent an email to David and told him that this was happening, and I just felt horrible, you know. I hey, so whose choice was David Arnold? Was that yours or was that the, the studios? Because that's a hell of a choice for this film. Well, you know, I when uh, Joel Michaels, the producer, um, was making a movie when we got financed, and you know, and and he was making a movie called Stargate. So he said, why don't you come down to Yuma where we're shooting and uh, hang out with us and just hang out on the set and just get a feel for it? Because he knew he knew I was a first time director. And and uh, so I went down to Yuma and I had a great time and I made friends with Roland and Dean, mm-hmm. everybody on that crew. Most of my crew was poached from Stargate. 
Yeah, the cinematographer. About everybody. And Joel had, was producing Stargate for, for Mario. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, it just made sense. And I liked the way they all worked together. And I dug the vibe. And, and David Arnold did the score for Stargate. So Joel suggested, you know, like, we've had a terrific experience with David. Why don't you meet him and talk to him? And uh, that's how David came around. And it was a no-brainer for me because David and I got along, you know, terrifically right from the get-go. And uh, he had a lot of ideas. He loved the film. He loved the story. He, he wanted to write a romantic score. Uh, yet he, he wanted it to be, you know, like sweeping and epic but still intimate and... And, you know, he really delivered. And, uh, you know, I think some of my fondest memories of that whole process from beginning, and I mean when I say beginning, writing the script, to the very end of walking in, uh, you know, the Friday it was released and watching it with a crowd. I mean, the whole, the, my, some of my favorite memories are working with David and, and discussing things. And um, I'll never forget he... Um, he came over and he ensconced himself in a little apartment in uh, Santa Monica and he went to work <laughs> on, on writing music for it. And I'll never forget, he, I got a, a call from him. He said, hey, Pat, what are you doing? I said, oh, not much. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> he said, well, I think I cracked the main theme. Come down. I, wanna, I want you to come down. I want you to hear it. So I went down. I, I, uh, I went down with my girlfriend at the time. And uh, actually, I think... She was my wife at the time. Sorry, uh, <laughs> a little hazy. Uh, anyway, uh, we uh, so we rushed down to Santa Monica. We went into this little little apartment, and it's just messy. Everything you'd think of as a creative, right? And David's, where are you? I'm looking around. Where are you with this mess? And he's on me like a hand just. Juts up out of the. You know, <laughs> I'm over here, you know. Like so, uh, <laughs> we walk around, we get to, the, and he's got a little piano set up, and he's got notes everywhere. It's just crazy. And he says, "Okay, so give this a listen." So he put, he had a playback, and he put some images up. He ran some film, and he started playing the theme on the piano, dude. And I just, I tears came into my eyes because I just thought it was so beautiful and so, I mean, just sensitive and cool and. And it just made a yearning in me, you know, like when I heard, even on the piano, some of the music against some of the images Walter had created. So I was like, wow, I was knocked out. I was just knocked out. I just gave him a big hug, you know. Thank you, pal. <laughs> awesome. So I guess um, a happier ending to the story is that um, there's a, an upcoming Blu-ray, yes? Yes. Well... I was just going to add that uh, I did get a little vindication on the initial DVD release because the uh, uh, they agreed to release what they called a director's audio cut. So on the initial DVD release, you could either listen to the watch the movie with the narration or watch it without, which at least gave you know uh, people a choice to to see it as I originally intended. So I was thankful for that. But yes, I mean, it's weirdly, I mean, next year is the 25th anniversary of the release of the movie. And in that, all of that, all of those years, there has never been a Blu-ray release of the movie. So this is another weird story. I hadn't really talked to Joel Michaels, the producer, in in that time. So it it had been Mm -hmm. over two decades since I'd, you know, and that's how Hollywood is. You know, you're intense for a while working with somebody and then you move on to other things. I got busy at Disney and he got busy doing other things. And so we hadn't really 
connected in so long. So I was like thinking, well, it would be great to, to have a Blu-ray release of Last of the Dogmen. So many people had asked me, why hasn't it been released? And I had inquired over the years about uh, who owned the video rights. The, uh, and they were shuffling around. They were being shuffled around all the time. So for a while, it was held by Lionsgate. For a while, it was HBO who released the original Laserdisc and DVD. And for a while, it was uh, I had other, you know, so by the time, you know, with it six months ago, and I started really digging around, I came up with goose eggs. I could not figure out who owned... Who owned the damn thing? What's that? Who owned well, exactly. the damn thing? The, 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 part the of the yeah. problem was that the financing for the movie had come from several entities. So it was just yeah. a, a winding, like a, like a, the worst kind of... inner freeway interchange you could imagine about where which exit to where do i look you know kind of how do which road do i follow to try to figure it out so i honestly i gave up dude i just like fuck it man i i, I just i'm tired of trying to my agents couldn't figure it out nobody could figure it out so that like four months ago my girlfriend said oh well why don't i give it a try <laughs> and i was like good luck <laughs> you know yeah, have fun. And she was problem. like, oh my God, she was like a rabid wolverine. She would not let it go. And she ultimately tracked the rights down. And I'll be damned if they didn't circle all the way out into the universe and come swinging all the way back and landed right in the flap of Joel Michaels, the original producer of the movie. Get out of here. Who I never thought in a million <laughs> years to get in touch with because... I just, you know, usually those rights are controlled by a studio or an entity or whatever. Assumed, yeah. Well, what I didn't realize that three years ago, the rights to the entire movie, everything about the movie reverted to Joel. He owns the movie. He owns really? it outright. Wow. So <laughs> that is the, it is so weird, dude. So I emailed him and I said, Joel, do you, is it true you own? And he's like, yeah, let's have lunch. So we had lunch. And uh, and uh, I put him in touch with uh, this guy at Kino Lorber, who I sort of made an initial inquiry about a Blu-ray release, and he was like, "I love that film. Yeah, we'd love to release it." Uh, so it looks like it. Kino's going to do it, and we're going to get it done. And uh, this coming year will be the 25th anniversary. We're going to record a new commentary, Joel and I. There's all sorts of other goodies that we have uh, that we're gonna we're gonna put into it. Um, so I'm very excited. And that's just the first half. Well, more accurately, like a little under the first two thirds. Maybe think of it like the intermission, which used to break up an old-school roadshow movie presentation like Lawrence of Arabia, Ice Station Zebra, or Where Eagles Dare, where contrary to popular belief, they really didn't come in the middle of a film, but just below the two-thirds part, kind of like a seventh-inning stretch in a baseball game or something like that. Well, huge thanks to Tab for being so open, blunt, and candid about both the ups and downs and sidewayses of his career in particular and the industry in general. And in the second half, we'll dive into his work on all of those animated films and series his pen has been a part of, including Disney's Hunchback, Atlantis, Tarzan, and Brother Bear, DC's Batman Year One and Batman Superman Apocalypse, 
Warner Animation's 2011 revival of Thundercats, and more. As someone who at one time was headed down the possible career path of an animator, I found his behind-the-scenes recollections and modern-day responses of people who grew up on those films and series fascinating as all hell. I'm pretty sure you will, too. So till then, I'm Craig Jamison of Bell Cottage Online, thanking you for joining us at the Movie Sneak. See you again next time, up in those cheap seats. to all film, television, music, and other audio clips are the property of the copyright owners and used here for educational and criticism purposes only. (laughs) 